The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please go to www.folfcrc.com. Well, that's an easy text, right? We got our work cut out for us this morning. You might wonder why we did such a lengthy piece, and it's because Jesus' disciples asked Jesus a question, and Jesus gave them an answer. And so I thought, you deserve to see the whole answer. So we pray with me as we hit this word? It's big. We need God's help. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you're a speaking God, a communicating God, a sovereign God. Thank you that each one of us is here today. Lord, it's no accident. Each one of us is right here, right now. Lord, and I believe, we believe you want to speak to us as we encounter your word. So please help me. Help me to teach this clearly and faithfully, efficiently in this case. And help us all, Lord, myself included, to hear what you have to say. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, imagine it's your Super Bowl moment. It's your Super Bowl moment. It's the moment that counts. The moment that makes your legacy. It determines everything. The pressure's on. Uh, Maybe it's your presentation that could win the contract. It's on. Maybe it's the interview that could land the job. The pressure's on. Maybe it's the test that makes or breaks the class. It's on. It's the defining moment. And the question is, are you ready? Are you prepared? I think we all have moments like these in our lives, don't we? Have you ever had a moment like this and you were nervous? Oh my goodness, you know, I still have dreams, and this will show you what kind of a loser I am, okay? I still have dreams where I'm about to preach some hugely important message, and there's just this massive, massive crowd, and all sorts of important people are there, but, but in my dream, I have no sermon, I have no Bible, I have no notes, I have no message, and then some of my clothes aren't working. And the point is, I'm not prepared. I'm not ready. It's the moment. The moment's come, and here it is, and I'm empty. I got nothing. And that is, evidently, that's a huge fear of mine, because I have dreams about it. Anyone else? Can you resonate? The moment, unprepared. Well, this moment that we're thinking about this morning is the moment of all moments. It's the moment of all moments. Imagine it with me. It's the moment Jesus comes back. Boy, what if it's real? What if he is who he said he is? What if he really died and rose? And now he's reigning, and and the message is spreading about what he's done to save us. And what if it's true he's really going to come back? And when he comes back, it won't be as a humble servant where we're not sure if he's the son of God or not. It'll be explicit. And when he comes back, we'll see who he is, and we'll know he's the king and when he comes back, he'll judge, we'll answer for how we've lived, every thought, every moment, and he'll, and he'll judge us with perfect knowledge. And everything will depend on that moment. Will you be ready? How did you respond to him? Are you ready? If we dream about any moment, maybe it should be that one. Are we prepared? How badly will you have wanted to be prepared? How badly? Well, the good news is for us is that Jesus wants you to be prepared. He loves you. He wants us to be prepared. He wants us to be ready. And in this passage, he basically gives his disciples four ways to be prepared for the biggest moment of anybody's life, either death when you meet him or when he returns. So we're in Matthew chapter 4. We've been going through this gospel for a long time. Coming to the end, this is the last week of Jesus' life. He's about to die on the cross. Last week, we heard Jesus judge the religious leaders of the day. Remember that? He just beat them all around, didn't he? For being self-righteous hypocrites. So if you've ever thought, oh, I don't want to go to church, they're full of self-righteous hypocrites, I guarantee you Jesus hates it more than you do, right? We saw that last week. Wow. So now he, he finishes that that uh, judgment of these self-righteous hypocrites, he finished it with verses 37 to 38 of 23. Will you look there with me? It's page 829. Jesus said in verse 37 of chapter 23, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. 
So they've rejected him. Verse 38, see, your house is left to you desolate. So we're done. Your system's done. It's over. Mic drop, right? He's done. And now he leaves the temple. Wow. And so as he's going away, verse 1 of chapter 24, the disciples, it says, start pointing out to him the buildings of the temple. Now here's, here's a place where it's hard for you and I as modern listeners to connect with the text. But if supposedly, according to ancient historians, if you could have seen Herod's temple, it was a wonder. It was massive. It was glorious. It was beautiful. And so as they're walking along, it's like, it's like going to the Grand Canyon or something like that and just being like, wow, that's amazing. That is beautiful. That's what the disciples are saying. And so then Jesus likes to stick a dynamite on their party with verse 2. Do you see what he says? This is huge. Jesus answers them, you see all these things, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So what did Jesus just say about the Jewish temple? It's coming down, and it's coming down hard. It's coming down to where the rocks aren't even together anymore. And, you know, where they were walking, some of the stones that they had in this temple were 40 feet by 12 by 12. We still don't even know how they moved them there. So to see this, it's like seeing the pyramids or something, a little smaller. But it's seeing this and being, and he says, it's coming down. Every stone is coming down. And so his disciples, I mean, listen, to them the temple is like, that's everything. That's, that's the White House and more. It's, um, that's our cultural center. That's our pride and joy. That's where we go to meet with God. That's what builds our culture. That's how we know who we are and how to live. That's everything. And Jesus says, it's coming down. It's coming down. And so they have questions. Can you imagine? They got questions. And so they go back to the Mount of Olives, it says in verse 3. They go back to the Mount of Olives. That's like Jesus and his disciples. That's like their man cave. They would go to this park, and they would chill out together, and they would talk about stuff together, and they would hang out together. This is where they go. And so they go back to their spot, and the disciples have this question. It's hugely important to understand the passage. All right, So look with me at verse 3. He sat on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately, and they said, Tell us. There's a few aspects here. What do they want to know? Number one, when will these things be? What things? Probably tearing down the temple, right? He just said the temple's coming down. So their first question is, well, when are you going to do that? Fair enough. Okay. But there's a second angle to their question. They didn't just say, when are you tearing down the temple? What else do they want to know about? End of verse 3. What will be the sign of your coming and of what? The end of the age. Large question. Now here's a couple things for why it's weird. Why would you ask someone who's right there standing next to you what the sign of their coming will be? You know, it's like, hey, when are you going to come? And you're like, I'm here. What do they mean by that? The sign of your coming. And then why do they tag it with the end of the age? It sounds like the Lord of the Rings, right? An age, um, a history pattern. So, first of all, we have to try to climb into the disciples' heads and be like, what is this question? Why do they think temple connects with, right? Because they heard, oh, temple's coming down. That must mean you're coming and that the end of the age is near. That's what they're assuming. I wasn't assuming that, were you? They were. Why? What are they getting at? So we've got to understand that. And then Jesus, in his answer, is going to say, here's what's going to go down. I want you to be prepared. Here's what's going to go down. I want you to be prepared. So you ready? Here we go. We're going to look at, uh, just to give you a map of where we're going, we're going to look at the question, get into their heads. We're going to hear Jesus' response for how to prepare for his return. There's going to be four things. The last two, I'm going to go real fast, because they hit again later in Matthew 25, Okay. So I'm going to spend more time on the first two. So we're going to look at the disciples' questions and then four ways to be prepared for the coming of Jesus. You tracking? You with me? I need your help on this one. Yeah, we're in. We're in. We're going. Okay. Here we go. First, the disciples' questions. Well, first century Jews believed that there would be this four-part process. There would be what you would call tribulation. So that means the nations are beating us up. We're under their thumb. Second, 
The promised king would come. You've heard the word Messiah or Christ. That means God's promised king. He's going to come. So there's tribulation from the nations. Then the promised king would come. And when he comes, he's going to judge evil. Of course, right? He's going to judge evil. So he's going to judge the evil nations, but he's also going to judge hypocritical Israel. So there's tribulation. The king comes and he judges. And then after he judges evil, he's going to bring the new age. Listen, everybody's looking for the new age. Marxists want the new age. We're going to build a utopia, okay? We're going to build a utopia. It doesn't work, I don't think. But we all want the new age. Don't, don't we have the idea? Doesn't everybody have the idea something's wrong right now? Something's wrong. <laughs> Read the news. Watch the news. It's wrong. There's a lot wrong. Is, is, is this just a train that's just going to run into the dead end? Is that all there is? Or is there hope for, like, something different, something new? Well, biblically, a new age has it's been the hope from the beginning. One day there won't be evil anymore. Wouldn't that be nice? One day there'll be justice for everyone. Wouldn't that be nice? One day there'll be love. And, and really the biggest part of it is that one day, instead of knowing God by faith and his promises, we'll know him by experience. He's here. And we see him. And we're friends with him face to face. Wouldn't that be awesome? A new age. And so the disciples think, tribulation, king brings judgment, king brings a new age. So then they get out their notepads. I see something going on here. Is Israel under tribulation from the nations? Yeah, they're under the rule of Rome. Rome is crucifying them on the streets. Check. Did the Messiah come to the to the disciples in their point of view. Did the promised king come? Well, yeah, they've been spending three years with Jesus. They've seen his miracles. They've heard his teaching. They've watched him judge the temple. Check. Has he come in judgment, judging the hypocrites, hypocritical Israel? Check. He just laid into the Pharisees, and he just said the temple's coming down. So what's next in their mind? It's easy. Well, now you, build, now you, now you destroy the nations, and you bring the what? The new age. Bring it. When's it going to come? When's it going to come? And you know what? They're not thinking 2,000 years later. They're thinking, my schedule's free this, this weekend. <laughs> really, Jesus just came into the city. All the crowds were praising him. He judged the temple. It's Passover right now. Everybody who cares is here. Now's the time. There's huge parties wanting political revolt. Everything is as height of intensity. Well, it's got to be now. They're thinking judgment of the temple leads to the new age. It's one thing in their mind. And so when they say you're coming, they don't mean you're not really here even though you're here. It's not, it's not really a coming. It's a revelation. It's a revealing. When will you show everyone who you are? When will you show everyone you're the king? Parousia is the word. Coming in revelation. Coming in victory. So do you see the disciples' question? Everything's been adding up. So they see it happening in one thing. So these two issues of the temple coming down and the revelation of Jesus Christ in the new age, in their mind, they're together. And part of Jesus' work and his answer is going to be like, slow down. (laughs) It's not one thing. It's two things. Slow down. See, the disciples forgot that in the middle of him coming and judging and saving was that he's going to come first humbly. Why? Why does he come humbly? Because if he had just come in judgment, who gets saved? Who makes it? I don't. They don't make it. Nobody makes it. Nobody's good enough. Everybody's rebelled. Nobody makes it. So he comes first humbly. Why? To save us. To... To live the life we couldn't live. He lived a perfect life pleasing to God. He did it for me. He'll give it to you if you trust him. He died a death in your place. He paid for your sins, right? We've got this guilt complex. We know we've done it wrong. We've got skeletons in our closet. We try to excuse it. Nobody's perfect. We knew that. We try to say we're okay, but in our heart of hearts, we know, man, if God's looking, I've sinned. And Jesus said, yeah, you have, and I paid for it. Let me. 
I took your place. I took God's punishment in your place. I bought your forgiveness. He lived the perfect life we couldn't live. He died on the cross in our place as a substitute. He rose from the dead in victory so that we could be saved, so that we could be forgiven, made right with God, adopted as his children. For all who believe it's a gift, trust him, and it's yours. He had to do that first. But that means that even though there's this break between judgment of the temple and revealing of Jesus in the new age, there's this break. Well, number one, what's the break for? We're going to get into that. Why is he waiting? Number two, he's still coming. He's still coming. There is still a day when he will come and he'll be revealed and he'll say to the world, hello. And we'll all be like, oh. There won't be any scholarly debates on, I don't know if he's the Messiah or not. We'll all be like, Oh, and many, many will be like, oh, darn, except probably not darn, but I don't want you to have to fire me after the sermon, right? Oh, no, there he is. He's coming. Are you ready for that? Are you ready? Four ways to be ready. So, so the disciples ask this question. In their mind, it's one thing. Jesus is going to answer it and tell them more about when, tell them it's really two things, and really tell them how to be prepared. Make sense? Okay, how to be prepared. Number one. This is verses four to 14, okay? Four to 14. The first way to be prepared for the return and the revealing of Jesus Christ is to endure. Endure. Keep going. Verses four to 14, you see a lot of pressure Pressure. Look at verses 4 to 5. See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I'm the Christ. They'll lead you astray. Pressure from false teachers. Verses 6 to 8. Pressure from global situations, wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes. Pressure. Verses 9 to 11, pressure from persecution. They'll deliver you up to tribulation, put you to death. You'll be hated. You'll be betrayed. Pressure. And the point is, verse 11, many prophets will rise and lead many astray. So in these verses, you have astray, astray, astray. There's pressure that will push you astray. Jesus is saying, life will be hard, and especially hard as a Christian. And that pressure will have you thinking, well, this isn't worth it. I'm out. I'm leaving. God's not good. He's not taking care of me. I'm gone. I'm going astray. John Stott said, the test of love is loyalty. What do you think of that? The test of love is loyalty. I love you. Times are hard. I'm out. I love you. Times are hard. I'm loyal. Will we be loyal to Christ in hard times? So you've got false teaching pressure. Four, four to five we see, you know, different people are going to say, hey, here I am. I'm the Christ. And they're not just going to say that explicitly. They're going to say it subversively. They're going to say things like hope in me. I'm the hope. They're going to say things like find your identity in this. I'm who you, I'm your meaning, I'm your life. Anything that tries to take the place of what only Jesus can do. Hey, come to me, follow me, follow me. False Christ. Now here's another reason we know that it's gonna take a while because how's it gonna work if Jesus is still there in the room and somebody's like, no, I'm Jesus. And the disciples would all be like, we see him. What does this imply already? Jesus isn't there, doesn't it imply that? He's not there. He's gone somehow. He's far away. And while he's gone, others will be trying to claim and take his place so that we will go astray and leave Christ. Pressure. Pressure from global situations. I think this is funny. Maybe you'll agree. Not the wars and rumors of wars. That's not funny. Kingdom against kingdom. That's not funny. Famine is the earthquakes. Not funny. What's funny is what he says in the second sentence of verse 6. You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are what? Not alarmed. How many of you want to be like, but Jesus, all of those things are alarming. <laughs> I'm scared of wars. And we live in California, earthquakes. They're scary. Don't sweat it, Jesus said. It's just the beginning. 
Now again, is he going to come and be revealed soon, or is it going to be a while? He says, don't be alarmed. The end's not yet. Verse 8, he says, it's just the beginning. Is it going to be a while? It's going to be a while. He's saying, slow down. It's not going to be one thing. It's going to be a while. You're going to have to wait. But as you wait, there's going to be pressure. How is it possible that we could not be alarmed in the midst of wars? Look at our earth. Oh, my gosh, it's alarming. As Americans, we have our nice, safe little spots surrounded by water. What a gift that's been over our history. But the world, right? Wars, rumors of wars, it's alarming. How, how is it that we can make it in a sense, yeah, we're worried, we care, but we're not alarmed? Because we know he's in control and he's with us. He's got us. And he tell, he's telling us beforehand. You know, straight talk. Anybody ever heard that uh, if you come to Jesus, all, your life will get better? I hope you didn't hear it. I mean, it gets better. It does. Because it's really nice to know the Lord. He's changed my life. I love Jesus. He's made everything better. But that doesn't mean easy, right? And I know a lot of people who they've heard, you know, if you come to Jesus, well, you'll be rich and your kids will obey you. And um, <laughs> if you tithe, it's like winning the lottery, you know. Uh, you'll never get sick, okay? I, I know people very close to me who say that. Straight talk, did Jesus say that? Is Jesus saying, oh, it's just going to be gravy, no, it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. And not only is life just going to be hard, and we have to endure through it, it's going to be harder sometimes, harder, because you're a Christian. Press it for persecution. Look at verses 9 to 12. They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you'll be hated. By who? Verse 9. All nations. Who? Everybody. The whole world. The whole world will at some point hate you, Jesus says. Now again, does this make it sound like Jesus is coming back, being revealed this weekend, or is there going to be a while? <laughs> it's really kind of funny. How far has the gospel gotten at this point? This little, this little neighborhood in Jerusalem, and Jesus is like, oh, the whole world's going to know about you. How long's that going to take? It's going to be a while. But, by the way, the whole world's going to hate you. And if you watch the history of Christianity, it's exactly right. It's exactly right. And, and you, we might think as Americans, well, isn't he kind of being like Eeyore and Winnie the Pooh, you know? Woe is me. I'm sad. Everybody hates you. I mean, my life's not that bad. Did you know that there, according to the Huffington Post, there were 4,344 Christians killed for their faith in 2014? For being a Christian, killed. It's more than people that died in the World Trade Center. Last year, all over the world, killed. Each month, according to Open Door USA, 214 churches and properties are destroyed, and 772 forms of violence, beatings, abductions, rapes, arrests, forced marriages happen to Christians because they're Christians every month. Persecution is everywhere. It's hard for you and I to get because we've lived in this little Disneyland of world history called America. Praise God for freedom, right? And what's our version of persecution, right? I mentioned Jesus and they made a mean face at me, right? Ah, I'll never do it again. Yeah. Jesus is like, they're, they're going to kill you. How many of the apostles made it to a natural cause of death. Tradition tells us it's one, John, and he was exiled and maybe boiled in oil, supposedly. They all ate it. They all faced it. They all touched it. Pressure, pressure. And, it's, and what did he say? It's for my namesake. It's for my namesake. What does that mean? Loyalty is the test of love. How does somebody know you belong to Jesus? How does somebody know his name is on you? Is it because you're a nice person? Uh, they might think you're a, a Mormon, right? Uh, why? How do they know? I think there's only one obvious answer. You're talking about it. You're living differently, and you're saying why. 
and people will hate you. Mm. Why, why does the world hate Jesus? You know, in, in one sense, if you, if you look at pop culture, read pop culture, everybody, you know, I, I even saw a picture of Pamela Anderson. You know who she is, right? Am I, am I damning myself by admitting this? She had a t-shirt on that said, Jesus is my homeboy. You know? Everybody likes Jesus. Gandhi. Oh, yeah. Jesus. Great teacher. Okay. Great teacher. Except, what did Jesus say about himself? He's God. If you're a great teacher and you say you're God and you're not God, are you a great teacher? <laughs> you're a liar or you're crazy. Jesus says he's God. Listen, this is what Jesus says to the whole world. He says, your deeds are evil. You're sinning. And then he says, and your good deeds that you think are good that make you right, those are even worse. And he says, I'm the only one who can make you right, and I'm the only one who can pay for your sins. And the amazing part of that, for those of us who are convinced we're sinners, is we're like, oh, yes, please, I need that. But if you don't like the idea of somebody telling you that your deeds are wrong or that you need him to be right with God, well, come on, some of you even do this, right? When, if you converted as an adult, the first time you heard the gospel telling you, well, you're a sinner, you need Jesus, you're like, lay off. The world hates that. And, if we, and that's the core message of the gospel, right? That's the core message. And so if, we, if we're any claim close to honest... The world will hate us. So what are we to do with all this pressure? Look at verse 13. But the one who, Jesus said, what? Endures to the end. Verse 13. But the one who, what? Endures to the end. Despite the pressure, despite the overhaul of the world, despite the persecution, despite all the false ideas, all the complications, all the distractions, despite all the pressure, do what? Hang in there till the end. Be tough. Don't let go. You fall, get up. Keep going. Hang on. False teachers come, you're like, no, I belong to Jesus, period. The evils of the world, you say, Jesus is enough. He'll get me through. He's in control. I'm sticking with him. Even in persecution, you say, Jesus is my reward. He's enough. I'm sticking through it. Endure to the end. Endure. You want to be ready for when Jesus comes back? Endure. Despite the pressure. So Jesus is, he's telling us the truth, right? There will be pressure. This will be hard. Keep going. Keep going. You can make it. And not only endure, endure in what? Look at verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Sounds like we have to endure, not just in following Jesus, but in doing something for him. What is that in this verse? And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed. We need to love people, right, as Christians? It's like Christianity 101. We need to listen to people. We need to be gentle with people. We need to be kind with people. We need to be patient with people. Amen. Amen. Sometimes I'm afraid my view of niceness evangelism leads me to being nice and never evangelizing. Right? It's kind of, do you ever feel like sometimes we have the assumption that, well, I'll tell them about Jesus once they're like begging me to tell them. This sounds like this sounds like we're talking even when some people are yelling at us not to, doesn't it? It sounds like we're preaching through the pressure. It sounds like we're preaching through the pressure. Who are we sharing the word with, guys? It's love, right, to preach, isn't it? Isn't it love to tell people who Jesus is and what he's done? Let's endure, endure in preaching. Number two, second way to be ready for Jesus' return Trust him. Trust him. And there's several varieties of this in this passage, several ways he wants them to trust him. One is very immediate. Again, what was the first part of the disciples' question? Jesus said, the temple's coming down, and they said, when? What's that going to be like? Jesus says, well, listen up. Verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, now how many of you are like, wait, time out. It's like, listen, you know, you have a friend who's a computer programmer, and they're like, well, you've got to take the binary. And you're like, okay. 
Or for me, if you're a mechanic, and well, you got a problem, your transmitter radio. Good. Or if you're at the doctor's office, oh, your coronary. Great. And then Jesus is like, and the abomination of desolation from Daniel. And we're like, don't know what you're talking about. Daniel was a prophet of the 600s. And he prophesied that something horrid and awful would happen to Israel. And he called it the abomination of desolation. An abomination is something that's just so evil and so wicked and so disgusting. And what happened was in 168 B.C., are you ready for this history lesson? Antiochus Epiphanes, the Greek king of the Seleucid Empire, came and invaded Jerusalem. And he walked into the temple and he set up an altar to Zeus and he sacrificed a pig. So he's making bacon right there in the Jewish temple to Zeus. Not only that, he made Jewish worship a capital offense. So if you worship the true God, you, you get killed for it. That's the abomination of desolation. And Jesus says, when it comes to our temple, get ready for part two. Part two. Look how strong his words are. When you see this happening, verse 15, Jesus says, verse 16, then let those who are in Judea, what? Leave, run. And what kind of running should you do? Verse 17, well, if you're up chilling on the housetop, don't even go down. Uh, your, ho- your housetop is like your porch back then. So imagine like, you know, you're James Bond running from roof to roof to get out. You're not even going down. Jesus says, run like that. Run like that. Get out. Leave. Don't even go down for your coat. And then, he's, he's, and then he's being compassionate. Look at verse 19. Oh, my gosh, pregnant women and those who are nursing babies. It's hard to jump from roof to roof, right? Oh, my goodness. And pray that it won't be in winter so you're not in the hills when it's cold. Pray that it won't be a Sabbath because nobody's going to help you because it's the day off and, and your limited resources. Pray for traveling mercies. Because what's going to happen, verse 21, there's going to be a great tribulation such as not begin from the beginning of the world until now. What was that? 70 A.D., Caesar ordered the whole city of Jerusalem and the temple to be razed to the ground. And so the Roman army came. You see, Israel was rebelling against Rome. And, and Roman army came and they besieged the city. Josephus, a first century historian, says there were one million people in this city besieged. And when we hear his words like, this is the worst ever, you know, Jesus says this is the worst ever, we're like, wait, what about Nazi Germany or whatever? D.A. Carson says this, never so high a percentage of a great city's population so thoroughly and so painfully, was, was, was such a great city's population so thoroughly and so painfully exterminated and enslaved as during the fall of Jerusalem. So percentage-wise, What the Romans did to Jerusalem was the worst ever. It was the worst ever. There's an ancient historian named Eusebius, and he says that when the Romans began to mass around Jerusalem, a whole group of Christians fled the city and went to Pella, to a neighboring city, and started a church there. Why did they leave so quickly when they saw the Roman army coming? Because Jesus told them it was coming. Leave. When they come, leave. There's no escape in this. Leave. What is Jesus saying? Trust me. Trust me. You know, they, they said, when's the temple coming down? He's, got, he's about to say, you're going to see it in this generation. When the Romans come, Leave. Trust me, what an amazing picture of his care and concern for them in that moment. But not only that, not only trust me with the temple coming down, but trust me with my return at the end. Trust me. Now, a lot of Christians over history have worried that Jesus will come back and they'll miss it. Jesus will come back and they'll miss it. What if, what if he already came? What if the super varsity Christians got zapped away and the rest of us were left? Or what if we missed it? What will happen? Or, or is he going to be mad? Is he going to be so changed and so different that you know, he's not the kind, humble-looking Jesus dying on the cross anymore now? He's this strong king and, ah! Trust me, J- 
Jesus says. Trust me. I love this. Look at verses 23 to 28. We'll spend most of our time on this point. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, don't believe it. Verse 24. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. But see, I've told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, don't go. If they say, oh, he's in the inner rooms, don't believe it. As lightning comes from the east and shines in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So we got this idea Jesus is going to be revealed. He's going to come back, and we think, well, what if we, what if we miss it? Is it possible that we're going to miss it? Yeah, I, I Googled it. It's kind of fun. Google it, people who claim to be Jesus. There was a, guy, a Mexican guy down in Florida who was like, I'm Jesus. There was a Chinese guy who claimed to be Jesus. A bunch of people were buying in on him being Jesus. Here's, here's the rule, right? If somebody's like, Jesus came back, he's here, what's our response? No, he's not. But he's in the special holy room. No, he's not. What if, and there's some, there's some evidence for this in the New Testament, what if some guy claims to be Jesus, what if he even does miracles? What if he does a real miracle? What if he heals somebody on TV and says, I'm Jesus, and you're like, I saw it, he healed him. You know what I'm going to tell you? I don't care. I don't care if he did heal him. What did Jesus say right here? To perform signs and wonders so as to lead what? Astray. Look at the next phrase. So as to lead, comma, what? If possible, the elect. Suck on this with me for a minute. Elect, what's that word mean? Chosen. We elect a president. We choose something. The elect, who are those people? If you've trusted in Christ and you've looked at him and said, I need you, you've got to save me, you learn that you were loved even deeper than that in ways you didn't know. The reason you're trusting is because he chose you. He loved you first. We're his elect. And what's so amazing is that all these false teachers, they'll try to lead us astray, and then Jesus says, if possible. What's he saying? I know my people, I'm going to keep them. Yeah, we'll, get, we'll, we'll go back and forth here and there, right? We'll get confused. But ultimately, fundamentally, no, he's keeping us. We won't be led astray. He's keeping us. He doesn't fail. He's not the kind of savior. He's like, I hope theoretically I can save people if they do it right enough. That's not Jesus. Jesus said, I came to save you and I will save you. When he died on the cross, he said, it is finished. They're saved. We're his. Trust me, Jesus is saying. Trust me. What about the thing with the vultures? Listen, you know, some of you say, oh, Jesus came, he's here, this is Jesus. And Jesus says, no, it'll be like lightning. Pop! Everybody will be like, oh, it'll be like lightning. And then he throws out where the corpses, the vultures will gather. You know, any nature show fans? Jesus obviously watched these too, okay? People said, why is he talking about vultures and corpses? Well, the issue here is, I mean, what's he saying? He's saying, he's saying in all these things, you'll know when it's me. If you see vultures circling above something for a while, what he knows there? There's something dead on the ground. Did you know, animal experts, that certain vultures can smell dead food from over a mile, two miles away, even if it's under a bunch of leaves and everything? They know where it is. And so this is is maybe one of the funniest metaphors in the Bible. You, my people, the elect, you're like vultures. And I'm like the carrion. In the sense that when I'm here, you'll know. Just like the vulture knows, you'll know. You'll know. Trust me. How does that make you feel when it comes to his return? Just trust me. You'll know. I know you. You know me. Well, no. Look at verses 29 to 30. Trust me. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Those are images for chaos in verse 29. Even creation itself is trembling. Verse 30, something weird. I don't even know what it is. I don't think anybody does. Verse 30, then will appear in heaven a what? 
the sign of the Son of Man. What do you think that is? I, I, I don't know. Here's my idea. I think it's a cross. Why? Because the cross says so many things. It says, you need me. I came. I died for you. I rose. I'm not on it anymore. Why would you reject me? Or it could be just the signs in the heavens are the sign of the Son of Man. I don't know. There's something there, right? A sign. Something we see. We all see it. What do all the tribes of the earth do after they see it? What's it going to be like? Verse 30. The tribes of the earth will mourn. Why are they going to mourn when they see Jesus coming back? Oh no. It was true. And we're not ready. We're not prepared. Because he's going to come on the clouds of heaven with power and glory. Does that sound subtle to you? You'll know me. And look what he'll do, verse 31. He'll send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. What's he going to do? Loud trumpet call. What are the angels going out to get everywhere? To gather his what? Elect. Again, who's that? Chosen people. His people that he loves. He's saying, Trust me. Trust me when it comes to Jerusalem. Trust me. When I come, you'll know. Trust me when I come. I know you. I'm coming to get you. I'm coming to get you. I'll know you. Trust me. You know, we're going to sing about this in a little bit. It's scary. The trump will resound. The Lord shall descend. Even so, it's well with my soul. How can, it be, how can you be well in that moment? When the glorified Jesus comes back. Because he said, I know you. I love you. It's okay. I chose you. I came for you. I died for you. I rose for you. I reign for you. I'm with you. Trust me. In verses 32 to 35, trust my words. Trust my words. I think verse 32 could have, could have pertained to the to the temple going down, look, when the fig, tree, the fig tree, you know, you see its leaves, you know, what, you know what season it is. When you see the armies, you know what's going on. Verse 34, I, tr- I say to you, my generation, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. What's he want you to do with his words? My words are stronger than creation. My words are rock solid. My words are rock hard. Trust me. You trust the chair you're sitting on. My words are more stable. You trust the ground you're standing on. Trust me. And maybe some of you are thinking, it's a good question. Didn't he just say all these things will take place in this generation? What's the problem so far? And part of what he seems to be talking about is his second coming. And it's not the first century anymore, or the second, or the third, or the fourth, right? Did he mess up? Did he think he was going to come back and tell the disciples, hey, I'll be back before you die? And then, whoops, is that what happened? Well, if you read commentaries on the book of Matthew, understanding this passage is like half of the book. But very clearly... The disciples are asking a question with two things hand in hand, right? The destruction of the temple and the revealing of Jesus. They saw it as one thing. What has Jesus said this entire conversation? It's two things. You're going to have to wait. In fact, the gospel is going to have to go to all nations. You're going to have to wait. It's two things. It's going to be a long distance. And so, obviously, in context, look, in verse 36, he's going to say, the day and the hour when I come back, who knows that one? Nobody knows it. So all these things in context, they pertain to, listen, the, term, the temple's going to come down when it comes, you better leave. And it pertains to, look, there's going to be suffering, there's going to be pressures, there's going to be rumors of wars. All those things are going to start. You're going to see all those things. But the end, it's not yet. It's not yet. So prepare for the coming of Christ. Endure 
trust. One last point for right now. Be ready. We'll see both of these points uh, in coming weeks. Jesus is going to tell parables. He says to be ready and to be faithful. But as far as being ready, look at verse 36. Jesus said, concerning that day and that hour, no one knows. Do you remember Harold Camping from not too long ago? He said that Jesus was going to come back on May 21st, 2011. And a lot of people bought in. They sold everything. They had parties and parades and, you know, hey, sell it all. Sell your 401K. Have a good time because Jesus is coming back May 21st, 2011. May 22nd, 2011. Aww. If anyone tells you they know when Jesus is coming back, what do you say? You're, you're fibbing. You're wrong. I have a verse. No one knows. And here's the thing. When they tell you they know when Jesus is coming back, they also usually have like an investment opportunity for you, if you know what I mean. Okay? These things seem to go hand in hand. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Jesus in his human nature said, I don't even know. But here's the thing. Verses 37 to 39. It's easy to think that because he's delaying, he'll never come. It's easy to think that. Noah told everybody, hey, the flood's coming. It didn't come for a long, long time. They're like, eh, no, it's not. Look at verses 37 to 39. For as the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Normal life will be happening. And people say, oh, it's been so long, he's never coming back. Well, Jesus says, that's exactly what it will be like. He'll come back, he'll come back, and then it will be decisive. It will be decisive. Look at verse 40. Then two men will be in the field, one taken and one left. Two men will be grinding at the mill, one taken and one left. In context, who's Jesus coming for? Remember the angel blows the horn and everything? Who's he coming for? The elect, God's people. Who's taken? God's people, they're taken to be with him. They're taken to belong to him. But in this time of life, right before he came, God's people and those who don't know Christ, they were right next to each other doing stuff together. And then all of a sudden he comes, boom, and it's decisive, and he takes his people. Now, I'll, I'll deal with this just in, for a second because some of you asked about it. Some of you might be thinking, is this the rapture? Now, if you want a longer conversation about the rapture later, I'll give that to you. Here's why I don't think it's what's commonly seen as the rapture. In the view of the world where you have a rapture, Jesus comes at probably four times. He comes in his incarnation. He comes to rapture his people. Then he comes again to reign in millennial Israel, for those of you who know and care what I'm talking about. Then he comes again, final judgment. I don't see those three extra comings in this passage or in many other passages. How many comings do you see? One. Even the disciples, what do they think? A temple... Revealing age change. Jesus says, well, you've got to spread out temple and revealing an age change. But then when he comes, he's not getting frequent flyer miles, right? He's coming, and he's taking his people, and it's over. And that's why we need to be ready. Stay awake. Look at verses 42 to 44. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, if the master of the house had known in part what the night of the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. One thing about thieves is they don't call ahead, right? How's it going? Uh, Thursday evening, you're going to be home? I'd like to come take everything. Oh, you're not in? Excellent. Right? That's why they watch Facebook. They look at your uh, vacation pictures. I'm going to Fiji. Oh, okay, sweet. Jesus says, I'm kind of like that. Nobody knows when I'm coming. Even though there's all these signs and all these pressures and all these hardships, there's still normal life. It's going to be a while, and you're going to think, maybe he's never going to come. And he's not going to call ahead and be like, May 11th. He said, it could be any time. And so what should you be? Ready. Be awake. Anticipate it. Anticipate it. It doesn't mean sell everything and have a party on the the roof of the back building, right? Come, Jesus. Because you're like, well, I still got bills to pay, need food to eat. 
all that other stuff. So you're living normal life. You're being faithful in normal life, but there should be a constant attitude in our minds. What is it? He's going to come. And it might be he just comes and it's the end of your life, right? Probably we'll die before he returns. I don't know. But that's when he's coming. Are you ready? Are you ready? And what if he comes like lightning, boom, and everybody sees it? Are you ready? That's the biggest thing. What does your heart say? Are you like, yeah, I can't wait. I'm going to be scared, but I can't wait. Here's how you can be like that. Remember, his major point is, trust me. Trust me. The major way to be ready for Jesus to come back is to know that he already came for you the first time and you trust in what he did. Jesus, you lived a perfect life in my place. Jesus, you died on the cross. You rose from the dead. That's because you chose me. That's because you love me. I put all my trust in you. I'm ready. I'm a little scared for when you come back, but I'm ready. I can't wait to see you. I'm ready. And then because of that, you're enduring even through all the pressures of your life, all the health problems, all the global problems, even persecution, you're, 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 you're going to keep going. You're not going to let up. You're going to share the gospel. You're going to talk about Jesus and what he's done for you. You're going to live a life that looks like it because of who he is to you. You're going to endure. You trust him. You're going to endure. You're going to be ready. And when he comes, you'll be prepared. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, that you love us so much. You want us to be prepared for what's coming. Thank you that we can trust your words. We can trust your life, your deeds. Lord, I pray for each one of us that we would just have an anticipation of knowing that you are going to come. It will be awesome. But that as we anticipate that, we can trust you. We can trust ourselves to you. You saved us. You did everything necessary to make us right with God. And that when you come, you'll know us. We'll know you. You'll know us. We're friends. You're our Lord. You'll come to save. Help us to be ready, Lord. Help us to be faithful. Help us to endure. And help us to spread the good news of what you've done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.